Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Our scripture this morning is Amos chapter 8. Amos the 8th chapter. And our subject this morning is the end of Israel. The end of Israel. Amos chapter 8. Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then said the Lord unto me, the end is come upon my people of Israel. I will not again pass by them any more. And the songs of the temple shall be howlings in that day, saith the Lord God. There shall be many dead bodies in every place. They shall cast them forth silence. Hear ye this, O ye that swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land to fail, saying, When will the new moon be gone that we may sell corn, and the Sabbath that we may set forth wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel great, and falsifying the balances by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes, yea, and sell the refuse of the wheat? The Lord has sworn by the excellency of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works. Shall not the land tremble for this, and every one mourn that dwelleth therein? And it shall rise up wholly as a flood, and it shall be cast out and drowned as by the flood of Egypt. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day. And I will turn your feasts into mourning, and all your songs into lamentation, and I will break up sackcloth upon all loins, and I will bring up sackcloth upon all loins, and baldness upon every head, and I will make it as the morning of an only son, and the end thereof as a bitter day. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. And that day shall the fair virgins and the young men faint for thirst. They that swear by the sin of Samaria, and say, Thy God, O Dan, liveth, and the manner of Beersheba liveth, even they shall fall and never rise up again. In chapter 7, Amos had described the first of three visions of judgment, and we've looked at these previously. The first vision of judgment was that of devouring locusts, and it appeared as though the locusts would completely destroy everything, but we're told the prophet prayed, and God had mercy, and uh, stopped the locust before they could destroy everything. 
Then the second vision was of a consuming fire. And again, it appeared as though the fire would com completely destroy the land. But the judgment was again abated when the prophet prayed. And these would appear to us to be what we would call natural disasters. Uh, but natural disasters, contrary to what some people suggest, are not a sign of the end times. They're really a sign of final judgment. If we believe that God causes day-to-day -day events, then when things go bad, this is to be a reminder of us of the ultimate judgment of God. Uh, because, in fact, we've always had pestilence. We've always had plagues. We've always had natural disasters such as uh, hurricanes and tornadoes and uh, earthquakes. Uh, the, these things all throughout history, however, are to remind us of the ultimate judgment of God. Um, we're, we're often amazed at how nature can seemingly turn against us and even against itself sometimes and be so destructive. But our, the point is that if God doesn't control the forces of nature, this is judgment that can be visited on us to our complete destruction. The third vision in chapter 7 was a vision of the plumb line. The plumb line is what it suggests. It's a plumb bob at the end of a line. It's been used by builders and still used by stonemasons and, and such. Um, it, it shows whether, because it works with gravity, the line is perfectly, the string is perfectly uh, vertical, and so it shows if something is perfectly vertical or whether it's been built poorly. Well, here God measures Israel with a plumb line, and God finds that Israel is not up to standards. They, they built something which is shoddy and which God has determined must be torn down. In the third vision of the plumb line, the prophet never offered a prayer because God had already inspected their work and he had judged it in the case, in, in, the, in the sense of determining uh, that it was uh, unworthy and it needed to be torn down. So God had already ruled in, the, in this case. Then at the end of chapter 7, there was an historical interlude where Amaziah had challenged Amos. Now in chapter 8, we have the fourth of five visions. In the fourth vision, God asked Amos to describe what he saw. And Amos answers in verse 2, it's a basket of summer fruit. And then God immediately tells Amos what that means. He says, the end is come upon my people Israel. I will not again pass by them anymore. Now, in what, in what way does a basket of summer fruit mean an end has come? Well, the summer fruit has been picked. It's been placed in a basket and, or, or a bowl. It's, it's ready to be consumed. But that also implies that it's not going to last for long. Fruit doesn't last 
long after it's harvested. It's, it can be enjoyed while it lasts, but it's soon going to spoil. So it implies that the harvest is over, it's past. And God has shown mercy in the past, but now God says there's a finality, that this represents an end. God says, I will not again pass by them anymore. Now, he also had said this in the third vision. In Egypt, God had passed over the Hebrews. In other words, they, they hadn't suffered his wrath. The angel passed over at the Passover, and he did not visit them with judgment as he did the Egyptians. Then in uh, chapter 5, verse 17 of uh, Amos, he, he again refers to his judgment as a passing through. So there's a difference here between a passing through in judgment and a passing by or passing over. God has, is saying here, he's not going to pass by them anymore. In other words, he's not going to bypass them. He's not going to be, show them patient long-suffering. He's not going to um, be tolerant of their sin anymore. God says, I... I'm going to visit you in your sin. I'm not going to pass by you. I'm going to pass through you. My presence, he's saying, is going to be felt. And the harvest being over means your time's up. Your, your good times are, are past, and things are about to go sour on you. Describe songs heard in the temple or palaces. Uh, the, if it's the palaces, as many commentators uh, believe, then it's the song of, of revelers. Uh, or, and and the, the sound of, of uh, happiness and joy is soon going to turn to sounds of anguish. Uh, but it's basically going to be some, some angry cries are going to be coming from the people during their time of judgment. The reason for these wailings or howlings or these horrible songs are going to be cut because there's so many dead bodies. There'll be so many dead bodies, they'll be cast out in silence. It's just going to be a, a grim work that nobody really even wants to talk about, but it's necessary. In uh, chapter 6, verse 10, there was a reference to bodies being burned and not buried. The Jews never burned their bodies. They buried them. Uh, and if they, they burned the dead in the city, it meant that they had no access to the cemetery. So it implies that they were undergoing a siege. And many people were dying during the siege, and uh, they had to get rid of the bodies, and so the bodies were being burned. And in verse 4, he missed returns to the cause of the judgment, their injustice. Verse 4 refers to swallowing up the needy, making the poor to fail. And likely, from other things the prophets have said, they were buying out the small landowners. They were making the poor dependents. The, the, it even says the rich were being impatient at the new moon. It was a, the new moon was a once-a-month feast. And he says they didn't like it because it meant that once a month they had to stop from 
doing business. They didn't want any kind of a festival or a, uh, a feast or an observant that robbed them of another business day in which they could make money. These business days, though, were characterized in verses 5 and 6. It says they made the ephah small. Ephah was a unit of measurement. It means they were shortchanging people by using smaller weights and claiming they were full-sized weight. It says they made the shekel great. Now, probably some reference to making big money, perhaps by overcharging. Uh, or they were perhaps this all refers to they were they were when it says they were falsifying the balances by deceit they may have been perverting the balances um, of deceit in other words they were the, the the scales were crooked their weights and measurements were fraudulent in business they were had set about to defraud people now this was specifically prohibited because it's a, a form of of out-and-out out theft. Uh, we might say that today our, our fiat money is also a unit of measurement. Fiat is, uh, excuse me, a, um, currency uh, in coin or paper is a form of barter. And if you are using gold and silver whose value cannot be manipulated by the rich or by the government, then you are bartering something of a known value. And people really ascribe that value to it in the marketplace. And if the government says, this is the currency you must accept in trade, and they keep creating more of it as we do with our money, you are basically taking something from the people because you're, you're saying you have to use this even though it's becoming less and less valuable. It's an unjust weight. It robs the people. Everything we do is measured in terms of currency. And so when the government depreciates the value, they rob from everyone. It's a form of taxation that ultimately leads to the destruction of an economy. So again, we see that the business practices were a practical form of obedience that the people were neglecting. They were getting rich on dishonest business practices. Basically, it's saying here that your prosperity is based in, in large part on a form of theft. You're cheating people. It's not enough for you to have prosperity. You've got to have also cheat people to get even more. Their dishonest practices were effectively stealing from the people and impoverishing them. It says that they were by their practices buying the poor with silver, but buying the needy for a pair of shoes. Now, a pair of shoes were worth next to nothing. Uh, back then, clothing and shoes were very valuable because everything had to be made. Uh, today, the cost of our clothing is relatively inexpensive because much of it is actually made from, for instance, petroleum products. It's all made by machinery, and so it can be made very, very cheaply. Back then, it, was, it cost a lot. A pair of shoes was very valuable. So when you wore out a pair of shoes, you could still sell them to somebody who was far poorer than you. And so any rag had value at the time. So basically saying you're, 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 you're buying the poor and needy for an old pair of shoes that you cast out. And it says not only that, but the poor were so locked out 
that all they could buy was the refuse of the wheat. You're probably saving the good wheat for trade, commerce, and all that the poor were about, allowed to buy through deceitful weights and measurements was actually very of very poor quality. They weren't important, and so they were being cheated uh, in various ways. Verses uh, 7 through 14, then, is a, rep a repetition of Amos' theme. It's the certainty of God's judgment. God swears by the excellency of Jacob. Jacob is a the name of Israel. It's likely a here used as a euphemism for God. In chapter 4, verse 2, God had sworn by his holiness. In chapter 6, verse 8, he swore by himself. The excellency of Jacob, or the excellency of Israel, is what God should have meant to the nation. It, it represents the reverence in which they should have held him. So God is saying he's not going to forget their work. Interesting, he, he doesn't say, I'm not going to forget your profession. We put in this Arminian era in which we live, uh, what man says is everything. Man's profession of faith is everything. A man is said to be a Christian because he has said some magical words. And what a man says is supposedly what we're supposed to take him to be. We're, we're to take a man at his word. But God says, I'm not going to forget your works. Jesus said, by their fruit ye shall know them. God is going to hold us accountable for our works, our actions, our observances, our obediences and our disobediences. We minimalize the importance of obedience. We make it entirely subjective and so we have no standard for ourselves or for other people. And so it's no um, accident that our, our behavior falls frequently very far short of God's concept of justice in his word. But God, when he judged them, he said, look at what you're doing. You're cheating the poor. Look at your business practices. They represent theft. You're not doing anything that I've told you to. You're not applying my commandments to your business and you're enjoying the prosperity of your business, but your social order is full of injustice because you're not obeying me. The certainty, the, the reality of judgment is described here in several ways. In verse 8, it's described as an earthquake. When God's judgment comes, it will be like the earth shaking. Everyone will be mourned. Everyone will be afraid. If you've been in a major natural disaster, it gets your attention. It, it dominates your thinking for days afterwards. There's, there's sort of a, perhaps we could call it an adrenaline um, rush that just doesn't seem to want to go away. And it's, everything is focused about that dramatic experience that you had. And it takes a long time before people can go back 
to normal. Well, that judgment is going to, to be like that, that earthquake that, that shakes us up and um, rocks us out of our complacency, our, our feeling that everything's just going to go on like it is. Uh, a second way that this judgment is spoken of is that it will be like a flood. When a river rises, you know, it's not just the water that touches your property that's the problem. You've seen pictures of uh, sandbags surrounding houses when a river rises. And if that water gets a, an eighth of an inch over those sandbags, it's going to fill up that whole area that was protected. Because once the river rises, there's, there's so much behind it that you cannot stop the river. There's no escape. When God's judgment comes, there'll be no escape. And the Nile here is specifically referred to because its annual flooding was well known in that part of the world. The Another example of judgment is that the sun will darken at noon. It also says darkness will come on a clear day. Remember, this is Israel's uh, golden age and Judah's golden age. But this high point is going to end suddenly. Assyria had had a bit of a downturn, and during their downturn, Palestine became very prosperous as a trade center. And so this was financially, not politically, but financially this was the best times that uh, Palestine had ever seen. Uh, Israel is, we'll see, or Judah specifically is referring to here, but they'll see darkness come suddenly, not after a, a long period of decline and an approaching gloom, it's going to come unexpectedly during the day of its glory. Out of the blue is an expression that we would use today. God's judgment is going to be like a dark shroud that suddenly covered them and turned their light to darkness. I guess we could compare this perhaps to the when the roaring 20s suddenly hit the stock market crash things changed virtually overnight. And we saw an echo of that a few years ago with the sudden banking crisis. And we're still not out of that. And I think there's more to come where seeming prosperity all seems to go south. Just in my lifetime, I've seen what seemed like, the, the, basically I was born during the post-war boom and in good times and America just seemed to be uh, doing no wrong and the economy was booming you know uh, Detroit was providing cars all over the world and that's greatly changed now our our economic glory days now seem a, a long long way away it also says their feasts will be replaced by mourning We've already seen references to death and the burning of corpses. Songs of lamentations are song of mourning for the dead. The mourning's not going to just be for the nation or for loss in general, but for personal loss, like mourning for an only son 
an only son was the heir. It was the future. Their, their, their future was going to be destroyed. We read of this mourning of, of Jews in Babylon. It's Psalm 137. One says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. It all seemed a distant memory because it was all gone. It was all dis destroyed and they were displaced off the land. It was only a memory for a couple of generations. And a lot of people we have to remember, this isn't judgment in theory, but judgment in practice. And over and over again, the prophets said, you know, your, your vineyard, you're not going to drink the wine. Your houses that you built, you're not going to sleep in them. All your wealth that you accumulated is going to go to somewhere else, and I'm going to make slaves of you in another land. A lot of people died in the process. In the siege of the northern kingdom, the siege of Samaria, a lot of people died. If they didn't die there, they died in the march to Assyria. Later, when Babylon would de destroy, would conquer the people, the people were deported. A lot of the people that wouldn't have made it. Those who did make it wouldn't make it out. Pregnant women who were marched off often lost their children or died. In verses 11 and 14, another analogy is used. There will be famine. This is not a famine of food or thirst for water, but of the word of God. There's going to be a spiritual famine, but God is not going to speak to them. Amos was the last prophet to Israel. I believe I mentioned Judah earlier. This, this, he is speaking to Israel here. And that he was the last prophet to Israel. So after Amos, God didn't send any more prophets to the northern kingdom. Amos is warning Israel of, of what was coming. Israel had rejected God's word. Israel had picked and chosen what words they would obey. And increasingly, it was fewer and fewer. And what little semblance of worship of Jehovah they had was superstitious and it was considered apostate by God. E even that worship was not in Jerusalem where it belonged, but it was associated with a calf cult, and then they mixed it up with Baalism. So they kept a few of the ceremonies, and they did apparently have sacrifices, but it was a polluted and apostate worship since the founding of the Northern Kingdom. Now God says, when you want my word, it's not going to be forthcoming. Amos was the last prophet to the northern kingdom. God says you're going to wander from sea to sea. In other words, all over the land. You'll seek a word from God, but it's not going to be forthcoming. He's basically had it with you. When some look for the lost tribes of Israel, they often think that if they find them, it will be important. And, and they search in all kinds of ways. They look at names and words in languages and say, well, this means this and so forth and it goes back to a, a a word with a hebrew root and it must mean that this particular people is represents the the lost tribes of israel and prophecies like this tell us that the the 10 northern tribes are lost because god basically told them to get lost he told them to go wander he said you can hope my word comes to you but he says, ye shall not find it. 
this dearth of God's word will cause the young to faint. Some of, perhaps some of the older generation would remember God's word to some extent. They'd, they'd know how to put this judgment in context. But the young, those who had only grown up with Baal worship, will have their whole worldview shattered. They'll ha they won't have a context for it. They would have been told that they were the chosen people of God and that God had given them this, this land and, and Jehovah was only their benefactor and they won't know what to make of this. They'll be faint. They'll be destroyed. They won't be able to handle it. Just as a lot of people aren't going to be able to handle the future. They aren't going to be able to handle the collapse of prosperity in the West because of our enslavement to debt and the reckoning that we have with our accountability for our being debtors. God is casting down Israel here because the Israelites were idolaters. He refers to the sin of Samaria, the God of Dan, this is the calf cult that was begun generations earlier by the first king after Solomon uh, died. Uh, Jeroboam I uh, became the king, first king of the, of the northern kingdom, and he instituted the calf cult because he didn't want people tied to Jerusalem. If people were tied to worship in Jerusalem, uh, they would hold some loyalty to the uh, the monarchy in Jerusalem, and he didn't want that. So he wanted the people to basically, he, he made an effort for them to cut off ties with, with the southern kingdom entirely, including worship in Jerusalem. And Dan, of course, was one of the two original centers of the calf cult along with Bethel. The, he also mentions the way of Beersheba. Now, Beersheba was actually in the southern kingdom. It was actually in southern Judah, but it was also a center of idolatry. But it was a place also pilgrimage, so apparently many of the people from the north often highly regarded Beersheba. So we don't know too much about it, but we know that it was a place of great superstition. So many swore by Beersheba, or the way of Beersheba, or the sacred way to Beersheba. And these idolaters themselves are being told in verse 14, you'll fall. You're going to fall down and you're never going to rise again. I've had it with you. To whatever extent the northern tribes are lost, we can say this is exactly what God said would happen. You're going to fall and you're not going to rise again. Those who trusted in idols, now for generations, would be cast down. Israel would end. Samaria would be destroyed. And the temples and palaces would be obliterated. So there'd be very little trace left of the grandeur that was once Samaria and the northern kingdom Israel. They trusted in their idols, so God left them to their idols, who he says aren't going to be able to help you. Israel assumed God's perpetual blessing was on them. If they sinned, they always saw others as greater sinners, and so more likely to be the subject of God's wrath. If the nation was unfaithful, they saw themselves as a cut above the officially pagan nations. So certainly, they'd see a long-term warning 
of God's approaching wrath. God is saying such presumption has been their downfall, and he's done with them. They're going to fall and not rise up. Let's pray. Our most good and gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to, to remember that you see our works, our obedience, not just our profession. Help us to make our works to match up with what we profess. Help us to be uh, not just a people of words, but a people of, of action, of faithfulness, of obedience. And give us a, a, an understanding of what you would have us to do in our lifetimes. Give us a, a vibrant faith, one that it controls our life in, in obedience to you. And help us to see our responsibility to obey you. And help us to see the church's responsibility to teach greater faithfulness to you. And we pray that uh, your spirit would move uh, men and nations to ever greater faithfulness to you. In Christ our Savior's name we pray. Amen. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.